Job chapter number one. The title of the message this morning is Job's Sinless Battle. Job's Sinless Battle. In Job chapter one, and then afterwards, we're going to go to the last chapter of Job, which is chapter 42. Job chapter 1, looking at verse number 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head, fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now in chapter 42, I'd like to read verses 7 and 8. And it was so, that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For all of you have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job has. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you for him will I accept lest I deal with you after your folly, and that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Job's sinless battle. Job was in the fight of his life. And I'm sure every time you have heard this story told about him, you're related, the portion that deals with his illness and all of his affliction. It's a very difficult circumstance to think about, but the first five verses of chapter 1 give us what we need to know about his character. The scripture tells us he was from the land of Uz. Scholars aren't quite sure where that might be. I've heard people say it's in Yemen. I've heard people speak of parts of Arabia. But the qualities that he exhibited, according to Scripture, it says he was perfect and upright. He was a man that lived for God. If he could turn from iniquity, he'd avoid it. The fact that it said he feared God tells us that in this particular time frame, there was an understanding that man ought to reverence God. Now, the Proverbs tell us that the fear of God is a fountain of life. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God tendeth to life. When you have God forever before you, it will curb bad behavior. Because you'll be thinking about how will this offend God? How will this grieve God? How will this affect my relationship with God? But he says he shunned evil. Do you do that? If you know that people are involved with things that are less than righteous and not necessarily appropriate, do you walk away from that? 
I hope you're not the kind of person that would dilly-dally with sin because the scripture says, can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? The answer is no. You get involved with it, it's going to affect you. It's impossible to not be affected by it. So this was a man who was a father and a husband, was a businessman, he was a farmer, and he was interested in what was right. And the scripture tells us he had a, a large family with 10 children. You know, if you've got that many cattle and you've got a lot of land to work along with that livestock, then quite naturally having a large family is a helpful thing. But all of his substance, as it was outlined there in chapter 3, demonstrates he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, there were thousands of people that were alive at this time. But here was a man that's called the greatest. He's the wealthiest, likely one of the wiser. And if you're the wealthiest and if you're the greatest, for whatever reason your greatness has come, then you've got to understand that you're also going to be the one that's targeted with envy. People will be jealous of you. You'll be disliked because of the blessing of God that is on your life. And it's his children that got together. All of us like to see family get together. You like it when your kids and grandkids come by. That's exactly how Job was. They would all gather in somebody's house, have some kind of a, a family reunion or just a feast together. And the scripture says that Job was the kind of dad who would get up early in the morning and offer sacrifices for his family. Not because they sinned, but just in case they did sin. I know you pray like that for your kids. You offer sacrifices of praise and prayer, and you say, Lord, I don't know what my kids may be doing at this time, but I'm praying that you would protect them, preserve them. In fact, I believe that many children are protected by the prayers of people who pray for them, even when the kids don't have sense enough to pray for themselves. I believe that. That's what Job was like. It didn't bother him to get up early in the morning. If he could get up early in the morning to do chores for his livestock, certainly he could get up early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for his children because his sons and daughters meant more to him than his cattle. It was a man that was sacrificing to God. And I love how the scripture says that Job did this continually. It ought to be a habit. Some people don't make it a habit to practice spiritual exercises. Some people rather do this, that, or the other rather than have to spend time fellowshipping, rather than sit and listen to the Word of God, rather than worship God and spend time in prayer. Many are like that, you know. I think sometimes we make God secondary because we enjoy those things connected with the flesh. There are a lot of people like to sing, they like worship. They, they enjoy opportunities that are provided uh, for them to be able to lead in a concert or something like that. But, you know, that, that, that flesh, it likes to, to pat its feet. It likes the rhythm. But sometimes it doesn't like to pray. Sometimes it doesn't want to hear the word. I, I recall a minister who one time was holding some meetings 
and they had a, a beautiful praise and worship group that was leading everybody in, into the presence of God. It wasn't like it was bad. It really was good. But that visiting evangelist for that meeting noticed that every time the, the worst singers were done with their song service, they exited the platform and headed out into the foyer area and sat out there. They didn't even stay in for the sermon. They just went on out there and sat and joked. And then when it was altar time, they'd come back, grab their instruments and play. They did that the first night. They did that the second night. The third night, that evangelist was there as they were exiting the platform. He said to them, I want you to know I came from the hotel ready to preach. I don't need you to pump the people up or get them ready. If you don't want to hear me preach, I don't want to hear you sing. Oh, yeah, they, 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 they headed right to that front pew and sat there and listened to what, what, he had to, what he had to say that night in the message. But the flesh doesn't want to have to sacrifice, you see. And it's the same thing with prayer. I can remember even around here when we used to have the 4.30 prayer meeting in the afternoon. And then when we were doing three services on Sunday, we moved it and we're doing it at 12.30. And I mean, oh, we'd come out here and have the service. There'd be a boatload of people out here as we have that morning service. But when it's time for prayer, scarce his hands, teeth in here talking to God. See? And people love to have other people do their prayer for them. Remember my kids. Remember my parents. Remember my cousin. And I remember one time down here praying in this altar, and I just thought to myself, this doesn't make any sense, us spending time on our knees praying for people that are at home sticking Doritos in their mouth and watching the game because they're too lazy to pray. Too lazy, see? but want God to do miracles for them. Job wasn't asking everybody else to do his praying and sacrificing for him. Job made sure that he was right there in the middle of it. Some people don't want to pray, but some people don't want to worship. I've gone to places to preach where they keep me in the pastor's study until four or five minutes before I'm supposed to take the microphone. They'll sit back there and converse about this, converse about that. I'll hear the worship and stuff going on, and I'll say, shouldn't we go on out there? They say, oh, no, we'll, we'll head on out there when it's about time for you to speak. And sure enough, we walk right on out there. They give the host pastor the microphone four or five minutes before I get it. And he says, come on, everybody, shout hallelujah to the Lord. Lift your hands to the king and worship God. And then after they do that for a minute and a half, then he said, Brother Darrell has come. He's going to minister the word of God. Some preachers aren't even worshipers. They won't dance in the presence of God. They won't lift their hands and worship God. They won't spend time in the presence of God because even they don't want to build an altar. Have to sacrifice. This is what Job did. Job did it continually. Even if he didn't feel like it, he didn't allow his emotions to keep him in the bed. He made the sacrifices. Well, then you would wonder why in the world then would a man that lived like this, was consistent like this, why would he be permitted to go through the kind of trial that he went through? Can't give you an answer to that. But I can tell you he had to overcome 
several different obstacles in order to be able to make it out on the other side. You'll notice in chapter 2, or excuse me, at the end, yes, at the end of chapter 2, you'll notice it says in verse 7, Satan went from the presence of the Lord and smote Job sore with boils. Some of you probably had a boil before. If you've ever had one, you know how painful it can be. If you've ever had an ingrown hair develop on your back or somewhere on your body, and then it gets a lot of pus and it becomes sensitive to touch, somewhat similar to a boil, but very difficult. This thing was itchy. And Job would take broken pieces of pottery and clay and scrape it because he was itching so much. And with all of that pus and everything oozing out of him, he sat there. The scripture says he never cursed God. He never charged God foolishly. He never did anything like that. But the first thing he had to overcome, of course, as you can see here in verse 7, he had to overcome the devil. Now, I don't even think Job even knew the devil was involved with all of this. But he still had to overcome the obstacles that the devil had placed before him. And you've got to do the exact same thing because your enemy, like a roaring lion, roams about looking for anybody that he may devour. And you are to resist the devil and let him know when he comes to you, no, you may not devour me. That's what you are to say. He's looking for whoever he can devour. And if the devil can divide a home, he'll split it. If he can torture your child, he'll do it. If he can grieve you through problems with your grandchildren, the devil will do it all day long. But no matter what takes place, don't rebuke God, don't call God names. Keep loving God, keep worshiping him. He had to overcome the devil. But notice in verse, verse number 9, his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said, You sound like one of the foolish women that speak. Shall I not receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? You can see that Job was in the dark about the, the source of his trouble. He was in the dark about what was taking place. But here is my point. He even had to overcome his wife. He had to overcome his wife's words. Here's the person that you stand up in front of witnesses with, as we do in modern times. We promise and pledge to love and honor, cherish and nurture. And we say in good times and bad times for richer and for poor. When someone's in health, when someone's sick. But as you can see with Job's wife, her love for God only extended so far as the blessings abounded. There are a lot of people like that. They lose something, they lose God. They lose a house, they lose their God. They lose a car, they lose a job, they become bitter, they become angry. Here Job was sitting there in all of that pain, and yet with his mouth he was still glorifying God and worshiping God. And here this mother had lost her children, buried her children, lost the cattle and the livestock. And she said, I don't even understand how you can worship God in all of this. Why don't you just curse God and die? She's saying, Job, I'm so fed up with you, I'm tired of living with you. How'd you like to be on the receiving end of that conversation? 
But Job didn't pick up and try to leave. He didn't ask her to leave. He just simply said, you talk like a fool that doesn't know God. He, re he retained his integrity and he overcame what his wife said. How do I know he overcame it? Because at the end, she was still there. She had learned a lesson. He didn't divorce her. He didn't leave her. He overcame his wife. But then notice verse 11. Job had three friends. They heard about the evil that came upon them. They came, every one, from their different places. They made an appointment to come and to mourn with him and to comfort him. Notice that, to mourn and to comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes and saw this infirmed man, they could barely recognize him. They began to weep. They began to cry. Have you ever seen anybody afflicted in such a way that they don't even look like what they normally look like? That's what they saw. Came from afar. They sat down with him and for seven days never said a word because the grief was very great in his life. But then also, Job also had to overcome the inward doubts that he had about God. He had to overcome those. Don't think they didn't come. Don't think that the devil wasn't putting thoughts in his mind saying, you know, God is unrighteous the way he's allowing you to go through this. It's just not right. He's permitting you to walk down this path, this valley of the shadow of death. And, and, and we've all been through there. You've got to overcome inward doubts and anxieties and bad thoughts. When the devil is trying to tell you that so-and-so was a good man, so-and-so was a good woman, and it's just not right that they have to go through this. But it doesn't matter. You've got to overcome that thinking and retain your relationship with God. People have been living and dying since the time began. Since the creation of man. People have been being born. People have been dying. There have been marriages. There have been separation. There have been funerals for thousands of years. Nobody understands it. We don't have an answer as to why sin produces the various effects that it does in the human body. But what I want you to understand is it doesn't change the fact that in the beginning all things that God made were good. That was his ideal. That was the plan in the beginning. So you've got to overcome those inward doubts when you're wrestling with these thoughts about I don't understand how God could let this happen. There was one very popular evangelist who used to preach with Billy Graham back when they were with Youth for Christ. This man was holding meetings all across North America. And right about, I'd say, five or six years before World War II, he started going to a seminary back on the East Coast and in that seminary, they started teaching him that Bible was filled with legends and tales. He started listening to that. They started telling him that it's not possible that Matthew really wrote that gospel. Nobody knows if Luke wrote the book of Acts, and we're not even sure if Jesus actually existed. And he took in all of that over and over again. The doubts began to creep in. Back during World War II, when... The Holocaust was occurring. There were people who would gather in theaters to see movies. And sometimes before the movie or between the movies, they would have a clip 
that would show our soldiers fighting abroad. And it would have somebody narrating. And so he, he saw one of these clips where during the Holocaust, the American soldiers had discovered these Jewish remains and thousands and thousands and thousands of bones. And he looked up that and people, he looked at that on the screen and people were weeping. And, and he thought to himself, how in the world could there ever be a God that would let people go through that? And he totally lost his faith, became an atheist. That's how he died. Now, folks, listen to me. I'm telling you, there's been bad stuff going on planet Earth ever since Cain killed Abel. And whether it's one or whether it's a million, death is still a bad thing. And the scripture said that last enemy that shall be destroyed will be death. There's no doubt about it. I don't have an answer. I can only tell you that you have to overcome those inward doubts that come to your mind. I don't understand why God ever permitted slavery to begin in this world. But it didn't begin in America. It didn't begin in Africa. The ancient Assyrians had slaves. The Greeks and Romans had slaves. I don't understand why in the world God let somebody like Genghis Khan live on this earth. It just seems to me for a man like him to ride a horse across Central Asia was for the devil to ride a horse across Central Asia. But they lived. They were here. You've got to overcome those doubts that you have because the scripture says the secret things belong to the Lord and what I have revealed belongs to you. So don't go to hell over a mystery. God doesn't have to tell you everything that goes on on planet Earth, nor does he need to provide you with a reason. But it's interesting, though, that with Job having overcome the adversary, having overcome his wife and her words, and having overcome these three friends, and then these inward doubts, that chapter 3 through chapter 41 is all about the conversations he had with his friends. You would have thought maybe God would have recorded his conversations with his wife, with his wife or something. But no, with his friends. They came and sat with him. So folks, think about that. The people that are closest to you very often become like Job's comforters. What did his three friends say to him continually and consistently? They said, Job when did a man ever perish with sin in his life? When did anybody ever go through the trial that you're passing through except they had secret sin? Now, come on, confess it. Confess it. You know that's why your kids died. You know that's why your sons and daughters perished. That's why you lost your income and your economy is bad in your home. Somewhere there's, there's sin in your life. Now confess it to us. How would you like to be battered like that? The 30 some odd chapters, day after day, week after week, family members standing at your bedside. You, you say you believe in God. Where is your God now? If he's not helping you, there must be a problem in your life. That is what Job heard. But we know how this began. The scripture tells us in chapter 1 
That there was a certain day when the sons of God came and presented themselves to the Lord. Satan was among them. And in chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord said, Satan, where have you been? Satan said, I've been walking back and forth looking for somebody to bother. And notice verse 8, the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? And then the testimony of God again was that he was perfect and upright. Satan said to God, he doesn't serve you for nothing. He serves you because you put a hedge about him. You're protecting him. That's the only reason he serves you. And the day you stop the protection business will be the day he'll turn his back on you. God said to the devil, you're a liar. God gave that adversary access. Now, here's the thing. Job never knew it. Job never understood it unless the Lord told him at the end and he pinned the words to this book. But here's the point. Trouble came to Job because of how Job lived. You say, how did he live? He lived for God. He lived righteously. God was bragging on him. God was boasting to the devil. And he was saying, this man is holy and this man loves you. So don't always believe that just because you're having adversity, there's sin in your life. Maybe God made some boastings about you. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, if, if that's true, I still would much rather if God didn't brag on me. Because if, if he's going to brag on me and then I'm going to have to deal with all of this, he could just as well not mention my name. Or maybe you think, well, maybe I shouldn't try to live a life as exemplary as Job lived. No, you should. He should. God was bragging on this man. And don't forget that the scripture says we should make our boast in the Lord. We boast about God. I think God should be able to boast about you. There should be something in you that God can say to any devil or any demon and say, you know what? In the midst of temptation, he or she is not going to yield to that adultery. It's not going to happen. Take your best shot, devil. It's not going to happen. Then the second aspect of this that I think is important, you can see from verse 10. The devil said, you blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. The devil loves to attack those that God blesses. He hates to see the blessing of God on anybody that fears God. If the Lord touches anything you're involved with and he brings prosperity and favor to it, I can promise you the devil is as close as he can to try to create problems. And here's what the scripture says. Give no place to him. Give no place to him. That means when he comes close to you and he's creating problems and he's whispering his thoughts in your head, begin to think on things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are holy, have a mind filled with faith. Don't allow him to wear you out, lest you become weary in your minds and faint. The scripture says, considering Jesus who endured the cross and despised the shame. You've got to resist the devil, and it's not something anybody else can do for you. James said, draw nigh unto God, he'll draw nigh unto you. Resist the devil and he will flee. 
he will flee. That's future tense. That doesn't tell you when he's going to flee. It just gives you the certainty that he is going to flee. I don't know if it means he's going to flee five minutes after you resist him, five days after you resist him. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and the devil came to him over and over again. And he resisted him every single time. So stand on the word of God. The devil loves to attack people that God loves. Scripture says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then came the devil. The Bible says that we are in Christ. And if we're seated in Christ, of course, we're beloved of God also. Then comes the devil. The day you accepted Jesus, the day you entered into the kingdom of God, the day you turned your back on darkness and turned from sin and began to walk with God, that day, that moment, you became a target of the devil. He made up, made up in his mind one way or another, I'm going to get him. There's no way I'm going to let him be consistent in how he lives. I'm going to fight her as long as there's breath in her lungs. That's what the devil says every day. And I'm telling you, each morning when you roll out of bed and swing those legs over and those feet hit the floor, the devil is ready to fight you. He's ready. And so he said, haven't you put a hedge about him? And you bless the work of his hands. I think you consider yourself blessed. You've got a good roof over your head. Got a vehicle. Got clothing. You came in here today, right mind, robust health, more or less. But yet you're here. And I can tell you there are a whole lot of people that love to trade places with you. Yeah. Yeah, I have, have no doubt at all. I told you about that preacher one time. He went and had to go visit a man in the hospital. He got there, man had cancer of the mouth. And that man's tongue had swelled up six, seven times its normal size to the point that it was protruding out of his mouth and the man couldn't even close his mouth. So even if he were to bite down, that tongue was still protruding cancer in his mouth. And that preacher got there and he said that man was laying there in that bed and he was in agony and in pain and all he could hear was that man groaning and moaning from the agony of it. I mean, the morphine wasn't even touching him. And here that preacher had come to lay hands on him and to pray and ask God to touch him, but he said, just when he was sympathizing with that man's pain, thinking about how horrible all of that was, he said just when he was about to lay hands on him and pray, he said he felt like God whispered to his heart and said there's not a man in hell that wouldn't trade places with him for five minutes. Think about that. That all the pain this man is experiencing lying there in that bed is nothing comparable to what's going on in hell right now. Think about it. Yeah. You're blessed. I'm blessed. Satan attacks the ones that God loves. But then I think there's something else that's important to mention here. And that is God cares about your battle. He cares about your warfare. 
I don't want you to think for one second when you read the book of Job that God wasn't interested in this man's battle. That's why he told the devil, this man is upright, he's holy, he turns from evil. He said, you do whatever you want to do to him, and I promise you, he's not going to turn his life away from me and follow after you. God cares about your struggles. He cares about your battle. He sees the affliction. He sees the wayfaring man that's on a path that may not necessarily seem to be full of plenty and blessing, and God is concerned about it. Every time you face a disappointment, God hadn't turned his back on you at all. He has not. And I'm sure out here in the last 35 years, there have been a lot of people that have lost their farm. And they wondered where was God, see? And there have been a lot of people here recently because of the current situation that have had to close their doors and lost their businesses. And they say, where is God? I can tell you he's the same place he was yesterday. He's seated on that throne and nothing has changed at all. God cares about your battle. He cares about your warfare. He's equipped you to be able to resist the devil. There's no doubt about it. So when you go to belly aching and, and mourning and, and weeping and crying, you've got to remember that God hadn't turned his back on you at all. His love for you is great and his love for you extends to wherever you are living, wherever you're serving. It's not going to change, folks. It's not going to change at all. Today, when you go home, you can think about that. Later on this week, you can think about that. But then let me add something else here. At the end of the book of Job, you can see where it says in verse number, number 8 that these good folks ought to offer up offerings for Job. And then it tells us, that Job's going to pray for these people. In Job 42, verse 8, Job's going to pray for these scoundrels that have been attacking him all this time. Sometimes your friends turn enemies. But Jesus said, pray for your enemies. But notice verse 10, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He gave him double for all the trouble that he had. Now that's interesting to me because it shows us that Job already had the victory in God before he ever experienced it. God knew what the latter end of Job was going to be before Job ever arrived to that end. And God sees your battle. God sees the, the things you're facing. He sees the adversity, the adversaries, the enemies, the obstacles, the challenges, everything that you're facing. But do you realize that God has already provided you a plan for victory for your latter end before you get to it? You say, what do I do? Do like Job did. Don't sin with your lips. Don't accuse God of unrighteousness. Don't pounce the floor and be angry and upset. And God, I'm mad at you because you won't let me do this and you won't let me do this and you're letting this happen to me. Don't fall into that trap. But just worship God and love him. Now, most people, when they preach on the book of Job, they like to tell you about his pains, his struggles, his troubles to set you up and get you ready for the fact that, you know, sometimes God just wants you to be hurt and poor and broke and sick. That's just the way it is. But they don't tell you about his latter end, how God blessed him in the end. 
It's the end of the story of Job that provides us with hope. Because we all have faced struggles. But the scripture says Jesus Christ is the hope of glory. So rather than using Job as a way to try to beat people into submission, to just say you ought to just accept your problems and accept, accept your condition. This is the way it is. It's never going to change. You don't have to do that. Expect your latter end to be greater than your former. If you have pain in your body, have an expectation as long as you're believing that God will help you. If you're having trouble in your marriage, have an expectation as long as you're married that God is able to repair the damage. There's trouble in the church, have an expectation God is able to fix it on the job, whatever it is, but have hope that God can intervene supernaturally. You rob people of the latter end of Job and you rob people of hope. But let me give you the rest of the story. Well, let's not forget that Job lived somewhere back before there ever was a Moses. Somewhere during the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, way back yonder. Job never had the covenant that we have. And Job didn't live on this side of the cross like we do. So Job's approach to God and trouble differs from ours because Job didn't have a Bible. Job didn't have inspired words that were inerrant. He had his friends, his comforters, the ones that came to mourn with him. But what oral stories and knowledge that was passed down to him According to God, he still lived as a perfect and upright man, and he turned from evil with what he had. But look at what you have. You have the story of Job to show you the character of God and the character of Job, and the scripture makes it very plain for each one of us that we also, in our relationship with the king, needs to know that God can boast and brag about us now. You say, why? Because the scripture says, greater is he that's within us than he that's in the world. Thanks be to God that causeth us to triumph always, the scripture says. By faith we overcome the world. You're not a sissy, you're a warrior. God has called you to be an overcomer of every struggle in life. So God can stand up and he can talk about you at any time to any devil because he lives in your heart by faith. And Jesus can testify about you through other people's lips. And even if the devil does attack those that God loves and blesses, Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. So I'm blessed, you're blessed, we're targets of the devil, but God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. You're not supposed to be afraid of him. We're not afraid of black magic and witchcraft and every other kind of thing that people get involved with, four-leaf clovers and rabbit's foots and tarot cards and people that are stirring boiling waters in pots and throwing in a, a, a toad's foot and all of that kind of stuff. We're not afraid of that. We serve God. And so even when the adversary comes against us, you need to know God is concerned about you. He cares about your battle so much that he said in the New Testament, cast your care upon him for he cares for you. 
He cares for you. He cares about your mornings. He cares about your afternoons. He cares about your evenings. He cares about your midnights. God cares about your sunrises. He cares about when you go to work. He cares about your travels throughout the day. He's concerned about every aspect of your life and don't ever forget it. If it's important to you, it's important to God. If it's meaningful to you, it's meaningful to God. And if you ever forget that, you have a hard time trusting that God is even thinking about you as you're living down here on planet Earth. But he is. I'll tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said, God knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, for some of us, it wouldn't take too long to count them. But for some of you with a head full of hair, thick hair, it'd take a while to get her done. But do you realize God knows how many hairs, how many follicles there are on your scalp? That's what the scripture says. And then the last thing I'd say is that God has already given you the victory even before you experience it. Before you experience it. The Bible says that Jesus climbed up on the cross and he spoiled the powers and principalities. There on Calvary's cross, he hung between earth and heaven. The penalty of death that should have come to us has fallen upon him. The scripture says, by his stripes we're made whole. The Bible says that Isaiah prophesied that 800 years before Jesus ever came. He healed the sick. He cast out devils. He walked on water. He multiplied loaves of bread and fishes. He did miracles. And then when he was buried, he came up out of that grave. He said, all power is given unto me. You go and be a witness unto me and tell everybody about what I'm talking about. And in my name, you'll do these things. You know what that means? Calvary's cross and the empty tomb has made you more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. Yeah. That means when you're facing various problems, you need to find the word, stand on the word, believe what the word says, and trust God. You say, well, pastor, when I'm battling a lack of an abundance of funds... How do I respond? What's my reaction in that? I tell you my reaction. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. God never promised he would supply my need according to my talents. He never said he'd supply your need according to your gift or your calling. He said he'd supply your need according to the riches of his grace. And God gives you more than you deserve. He sometimes gives you what you do not deserve. But whatever you receive from God, you should be willing to praise him and glorify him. And no matter what is taking place, let praises come out of your lips. And all these things, Job sinned not like other people. Yeah, there have been plenty of times where I've wondered, man, this is a pretty dire situation uh, for us to be passing through right now. God, I don't know how. You're going to do this, but I do have the expectation that you're going to get her, get her done. And there's always a devil whispering in somebody's ear, my ear, saying something like, do you really believe God is concerned enough about you to meet your little need? And then I have to remind myself over and over again that my little need still is a problem for him that he wants to resolve because I am his child. 
And if a natural parent has a love to want to resolve problems for their kids, how much more our Heavenly Father, who has people like us that are his children. So folks, keep your mind on God. Don't turn your back. Don't walk away from the king. Serve him. But with your speech, make God bigger in every problem and keep praising him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, let's stand. Let's stand. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before. You know, the kids are back in school. Got to keep them in prayer. I saw them the other day. I was coming out the backyard and came down the alley there and I looked and all the little elementary kids were out there playing and I watched the adults standing off to the side and I'm not, I, I'm not sure if the six and seven and eight year olds got the word about social distancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to go over there and play with them. They looked like they were having quite, quite the time. You know, they, everybody kicking the ball, some playing basketball. They're wrestling with each other. And I said, oh, looky there. But God's good, folks. Keep your faith. Hold fast your integrity. And walk with God throughout this week. Come on, let's pray. Oh, God, we, we love you today. We thank you. Help us to not be careless with the way that we live our lives. Over and over again, you've shown yourself to be strong on our behalf. So I'm praying that you lead, guide, direct each one of us, Lord, so that with our speech, we would not sin, but serve you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. We love you, folks. We love you. Everybody out in the parking lot, we love you. The tithe and offering box is about to be brought into the sanctuary. So praise the name of the Lord.